Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesum. Life, oh, life, it is quite hectic. How are you today, sir? David, you know, I, my spirits always lift uh, whenever I, ha I have any contact with you. But I have to say, honestly, um, I return to one of my favorite moments of quotation from paradise lost early in the piece satan with his monsters in pandemonium plotting revenge on eden seeking what reinforcement we may gain from hope if not what resolution from despair and i i really i i feel that you know, here is the captain of monsters, kind of like a Macbeth figure, strangely hypnotically, charismatically honorable, despite our inclinations. And I'm I'm really thinking about resolution from despair at the moment. I, I've been enormously disappointed of late with many of my, uh, you know, presumably intelligent, educated, liberal friends. And I, I feel like the sociopolitical nonsense has reached a point where no level of discourse on any subject is really possible. They're in great retreat. They're concerned about uh, Biden's continuing failure of presidency, the, the possibility of Kamala Harris being the first female <laughs> president with the worst, worst liberal poll approval ratings far underpassing dick cheney after shooting someone in the face um mm -hmm. but just a general that. a general malaise of critical thinking and loss of flexibility of mind and what it's made me think about is uh well helicopter kerosene on the arms each morning which is a good wake-up call and real military sit-ups and reading only serious, high intellectual, high art work and really trying to distance myself from the popular culture of the moment and to really engage with you and our show on a, on a very um, proudly smart front. And I really feel the need for psychic protection and psychic discipline on the occult intellectual front more than I've ever felt in my life. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm really mm -hmm. concerned about the nonsense I'm facing uh, in terms of teaching coming up in the fall, but I am very excited about the teaching that you're doing and I think you're having more fun. So let's always as our core goal and our core message to listeners, look to the fun. So how are you doing? Excellent. I'm having a really good time. There you uh, go. I've, That's what I've I'm enjoyed, talking. Uh, yeah, I've enjoyed feeling out all the different personalities and um, pinpointing the problems and fixing them. Where we are, uh, tomorrow it'll be two weeks that we've been in class together. And I've um, tomorrow is the last remaining class, the last remaining holdout of quiet kids, but I'm going to unleash the spider on them tomorrow. There you and go. After 
after I unleash this, but it's the last hour. It's the eighth hour of the day. They're tired. If I'm being honest, I'm a little tired too. And you know, the energy levels today were not where I wanted them to be. So I stopped the lesson halfway through and began asking ki kids who drove uh, what kind of cars they, they drove to get them talking, to get them active. And then we came back to it. And that almost worked, but then they fell back into that uh, unengaged uh, sort of stupor. I have no problem at all with loud children, with uh, class clowns, with people talking when I'm talking. There's no issue with that at all. That's just simply a proximity issue. I just move in their general direction and they stop. Um, and I've been learning a lot about these kids. You would not be surprised because you've taught for so long how uh, the intimate details they give you of their lives when you ask them to write, as I do every day. I'm the only English teacher that I know that gives them a writing assignment every day at the beginning of class. And well, I'm going to continue otherwise, to do Otherwise, I would come and shoot you. You know mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With, Nobody else does it. It would be exactly. with a really painful, you know, blow dart that would actually mm -hmm. cause long-term suffering and damage. No, mm -hmm. I understand that. I think, but you have to stick by that. That's exactly what you're doing. And you're doing a lot in that, the everydayness, the physicality of the writing, the connection mm -hmm. with it. And I hope that also coincides with the sharing of each other's writing. Yes, yes. So they are, at the end of every week, they show it to their partner. They go over it with their partner. It's when I'm going around the room and looking at it. And the thing, here's the key. I don't just have them write every day. I ha I read what they write at the end of every week. Uh, some of them were kind of surprised by that. I, again, I'm not sure what other teachers have done. I'm not disparaging Who anybody cares else. cares what other teachers do? That doesn't they, matter what you do. Yeah. Yeah. They said, they said, uh, oh, you're actually going to read these. And I said, yeah. Yeah. Well, why would I have you write them? And then I, I'm not, and then I don't read them. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, but uh, one man, you know, this is what yeah. we're really teaching. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. I I'm proud of you. And I think you've got to really stick by that discipline and dig in and, 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 and ratchet it up ratchet it up mm -hmm. get them to read their stuff get hear the voice as we read so do we write as we listen so do we speak it's a circle it's a circuit of communication get people really hearing hearing and engaging language no there are no introverts in my class i mean i say that right up front i say heaven help you and i'm sorry if heaven mm -hmm. is, a, is a problem for you but you know and i'll get some people you know and they'll they'll go to the deans and they'll go all the people. But you know what are they going to do? You know, mm -hmm, it, it's mm -hmm. about sharing. Language is ultimately has one goal: to share. Mm. You know, that's it. That's its point. So yeah, get them reading aloud. Get the, and but I think it's beautiful because you're such a good reader too, and I think it honors them. You know, it really, I mean, I would love, I love to hear you read anything that I've read. I hear it differently. You know, I think that's a beautiful, <laughs> joyous thing. And I think, well, Jesus Christ, that's like 
Bach playing some little whistle thing I just came up with, you know? It's like, it sounds different, you know? It sounds different when Bach does a riff on it, you know? And I think that's the way they will feel when you do a riff on it. So you think I should I should read their stuff out loud? I think you should do a mix of both, but I think you should have a lot of reading aloud, a lot of shared language aloud. We live Ooh, in an enormously like multicultural. Well, that's also yeah. my explanation for why grammar matters, because we've got so many people coming from so many different points of view, you know, uh, you need to be able to speak clearly, elocution, you know. People go, well, you can't teach elocution to African-Americans today. And I go, well, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? You're saying that beautifully spoken, successful, multimillionaire Black people can't speak well and communicate? I rather think they can, you know, mm -hmm. you know get everyone joyous a joyous noise you know mm, joyful mm -hmm. noise, you know that's the whole thing and when people feel their words can be shared aloud they get confidence i've seen it i've seen 250 pound young girls under under five foot tall so that's big they take up a whole my classrooms are much smaller than yours i gotta tell you so most mm -hmm. of them that's a lot of kid, a lot of young woman in a class. If she feels like she can get up and actually speak and share. And I've heard some beautiful things pour forth. Absolute beautiful, almost choral theater from one voice. And I've, I've, you know, I said, you know, uh, some, you know, you have so much talent, mm -hmm. but give yourself the challenge of having the courage to share it. You know, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I ain't gonna I ain't gonna invent the solution to your cowardice. That's what I say. Invent yeah. the solution to your cowardice. I like that. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. And create the welcoming. Uh, you know, this is the thing about this whole diversity and inclusion thing. You think, well, you get the right faces, you know. No, it's about personal dynamics. You have to create a right environment where people feel encouraged to share their shit and to really mm -hmm. perform it. And then you find out, oh, my God, someone's got some real stuff going on. I mean, I've got like 300 noisemaker clacker things. And I, like on, you know, on, on Monday, we're all going to make some music. I don't care about the language thing, first of all. I care about if we can harmonize and can do anything musically, listening, sound, you know. And if people could feel like they can make some music together, then they feel like they can share some weird, you know stuff absolutely wow that's really really cool i um was noticing in your show notes you said you had a band are we back to bands instead yeah of games? we're back to a band cool. and I, it's a little dark cool. it's a little dark it's a little dark i gotta tell you a little dark but i you know and it's on my old theme of kind of deconstruction of music but um here they are Bear Spray and the Puberty Blockers. And the title of their debut album is Kill Your Parents, Then Go to Your Room. 
<laughs> and the first single is genital mutilation is for everyone. I'm sensing a the theme. press release says they are apparently insane, over-the-top, leftist band of screech music. I've invented my own new genre. Screech music is a mix of rap, neo-punk, meeting pure noise and animal torture sounds using violence, heavy video and extreme cognitive dissonance messaging to harass, not prosecute, but harass all cliches about what influences people, especially young people. Their stated goal is a TikTok challenge of global mass suicide. But are they leftist, anarchist maniacs in terrible, inexcusable taste? They offend and disgust everyone. And yet, the purity of their onslaught has some disturbing graveyard of civilization joy. Maybe they're the enema that we all need. Reminds me of the Milton. Yeah. Um, that's great. That's great. You can really feel. The thing I love the most about Chris's writing for listeners, why I became a fan in the first place, is that the words are. They're selected like when you uh, like when you're watching a movie called no, I won't. I won't even make up a movie. When you're watching John Wick or James Bond, and James Bond is at Q, and Q is giving him all of his gadgets, or John Wick is selecting his weapons, and the sommelier of automatic rifles rolls out a huge case, and there are all these beautiful AR-15s and whatnot in there, and John picks one up and he, you know, sights it. That's what Chris does with words. It's a lot of fun. Um, well, I appreciate that, David, coming from you, because you do the same. And I, you know, the, there's nothing more important than to be honored by people uh, of the same level of magic. So I thank you for that. Um, You're very welcome. Do you have an aphorism for us today? I, I've got two that I'm really, uh, I think are important. Every moment is a collision of the past and the deeper past. And I think I really earned the ellipsis there of the three dot dots, because I think that is um, an interesting insight about the real nature of the notions of the past. Because of course I'm not dealing with the present or the future. The second one is uh, I've been really revisiting the idea of, of the greatest world culture center of all time. And I think it's number one on my list of places that I want to revisit. Uh, Alexandria. Uh, which is, yes, Africa, Egypt, but really the heart of the Mediterranean world, the heart of the classical world, the heart of knowledge, the heart of that moment where magic, science, religion, and cultural optimism was at its absolute peak. And as I think many people know, 
the Alexandrian library as an idea was probably the ultimate sense of, of, of civilization and humanity's uh, capability and belief in the possibilities of the future. It was, in fact, not burned down once, but many times. Um, so this is the line. Libraries aren't really built, but they can be burned. And I think that we have a notion of, I mean, my university, which I'm about to start teaching at again, has a beautiful library in terms of its architecture. But as Gilbert Ryle, who's one of our heroes and the, the foremost philosopher of modern times to talk about the notion of category, would say the library is, don't confuse the physical library with the notion the conceptual idea of libraries. Don't confuse the architecture with the knowledge it contains, with the engagement with uh, the possibilities of knowledge. You know, it, it really is a much richer intersection of ideas. Whereas I think you can say that, you know, I don't know if a hospital has that level of complexity. I don't think any other building, and we've talked about architecture in earlier episodes. I think the library is, is probably the ultimate uh, emblem of knowledge and continuance and sharing, which is the essence of the memory ideas that I'm working with in my book. So I thought, well, libraries aren't really built you can build a building, but then what do you do with it? You know, that's just a building and you can't really fill it, you know, stuff it, you know, pack it with books and knowledge and micro films. And, you know, yeah, you, you could, if that's, if that's your idea of a library, it's not a very good library, but nevertheless, libraries can be burned and destroyed. And this is my great sorrow about what's happening now. I, I think we're, we're living in a quiet, uh, era of I don't know if libraries are being burned and I don't want to in any way touch on book censorship uh, in terms of the left or the right I mean the ignorance of knowledge the forgetting of the beauty of what goes into making a library what a library really is and I think that we need to really rediscover and connect with that as a community resource, as a civilization resource, and not just a resource, but as the emblem of civilization. Absolutely. Preach. Yeah, Preach. well, I'm, I'm upset, man. I am. I'm upset. We can definitely talk about that. Before we do, though, can I have my imaginative challenge? You can, you can. And here, here, I, I don't want you to um, mistake my finger pointing at the moon for the moon uh, in, in sort of Zen terms. Um, what we're talking about here is uh, popular mythology and a trope system of premise that you're more than familiar with and that you and I both enjoy talking about and exploring, you know, in an entertainment art sense tremendously. But I want you to apply this idea in a more analytic sense, as if you're really uh, a cultural historian and sociologist 
So you're using a, a, a weapon, a tool, a mechanism of popular culture to try to explain contemporary social phenomena. So is that idea clear before I get to the specifics of it? I, I know that's a little, it is abstract, but I think the idea is using a popular uh, trope of entertainment as an actual, believing in it, in other words, and accepting that as a possible window to explain a social phenomenon in a hypothetical sense. Okay. I want you to think of wokeness as an MK Ultra alien X-Files mythology style project that has reached activation and viral velocity. Velocity. What would it be if we just accept that for a moment, just play with that idea as a rhetorical analytical tool? And you're, you know, in an academic paper sense, you would be stating this up front. I am not saying I believe there was ever a conspiracy between the CIA and extraterrestrial aliens located in either Nevada or the Bay Area or anywhere, but. But I am <laughs> to use those popular tropes as a way of examining a phenomenon that I think is curious and in need of explanation from radical, lateral, peculiar, and oblique angles. Yep. Got it. Makes sense? 100% it makes sense. Okay. Well, there you go. Let's rock and roll. Okay. All right. You're going to surprise me. You said in your notes that you were going to surprise me. So I'm ready for my surprise. Okay. Well, with David's permission and, and listeners' permission, I want to roll out an idea that is important to me. And I think it, it figures into my current thinking about my memory and consciousness book, which I... I, I gain more uh, confidence in it as I think anyone knows that, you know, the struggle is to have confidence in your ideas and, and to, to begin to be able to put some weight on them. You know, you want to be able to cross it like a bridge and you're making the bridge as you're writing the book or developing the thought. So it's, it's tricky. Um, I, I draw inspiration from a couple of points, which one of which I think many people are familiar with the allegory of the cave from Plato. I think that's a beautiful, uh, dramatized, philosophical presentation of a situation that I think is, you know, famous for thousands of years and rightly so. I also connect with the analogy or allegory of the television set, which one of uh, our heroes on the show, Rupert Sheldrake, has put forward as an explanation of field theory. And it's available on Rupert's website, just Google on the allegory of the television set and you will see what a beautiful uh, explanation he puts forward there for his purposes about morphogenetic fields and how biological form is derived and developed. He's just a wonderful, uh, clear, uh, lyrical, but nonetheless extremely practically oriented writer uh, from a scientific perspective. My uh, presentation here is the allegory of the telephone booth. And I, I like that 
the idea of the telephone booth for starters, because I think it is a gorgeous emblem of modernity, which is now an anachronism. I actually have students who have not seen a telephone booth. Mm. Uh, we have some very strange history with it. Uh, we can think of, of Clark Kent changing into Superman mm. in American telephone booths. Uh, of course, Doctor Who and the TARDIS is a telephone booth. Uh, there, It's a peculiar lost bit of architecture, which ties into an earlier theme that David and I looked at in terms of architecture. And I assume that people have some clear image of a discrete telephone booth in the classic sense. What do we have? Well, we have a public space by definition, but we have a very private space, possibly. That's a beautiful idea that is very hard to find again today. We have a place that is completely transparent for security safety reasons, and yet is quite capable of secrecy. We have a place that is used in endless movies as, you know, where the ransom payoff lead off, you know, so the, the, the person doing the drop off has to make the phone call, you know, diehard movies and on and on and on where and for many years, I, I was involved in, in, in photographing empty telephone booths. And of course, I love the, the phone dangling. So it's a cinematic trope that is very, very powerful. Well, in the midst of that investigation, uh, one of my great friends who I feel the deep sorrow and loss of all the more acutely of late, and yet I have to be speaking very personally, I do feel as if David is something of my um, lost friend coming back to life. Um, he was a real genius and he was a real lateral thinker uh, as David is and was always looking at things from interesting angles that would not appeal or even occur to other people. But uh, he was also very practical and he secured some closed circuit TV uh, equipment and we filmed this one very strategically located uh, telephone booth. And we watched as people came and go, you know, they came in with the circulation of bodies through the space. Well, of course, it wasn't so very long before we began to think about another theme that David and I have raised about how photography in all its extensions have altered our sense of time and that we could speed up that video. And as we sped it up and became more adept at the editing, some strange things happened. We started to see the people, this Andy Warhol sort of sense of meditation on this booth began to change. Suddenly the vacancy times were much smaller, but we were alert to those. But it seemed as if the bodies began to morph like ghosts or people in a kind of science fiction teleportation machine. So my idea for this show is I wanted to present David with this idea of this kind of artistic, but all, you know, to some extent scientific experiment that an earlier 
well, in my life anyway, an earlier rendition of the, the fellowship and intellectual artistic connection that we share, uh, how that developed, kind of an earlier Lost Explorers episode long before I ever met David. I wanted to present him with that idea. And then I have three takeout points that I want to run past him for his always original approach and response as a way of helping me understand, well, several things, but two things that we've talked about in the show. Architecture in various peculiar forms, and I think that we're lateral enough to look at the telephone booth as architecture. Mm -hmm. Photography and its relationship to time, and some of the social psychological implications to derive from this experiment. But I want to just introduce David to this idea. I, he has never heard this before. I don't think I've really talked about my friend Toby, who um, is not with us anymore in the direct sense, but is certainly with me in many ways. And just to get that initial feedback, but the allegory of the telephone booth and our attempts in, on a very amateur art and science level to find something out. Hit me, I'm ready. You have primed the pump. I'm good to go. Well, what do you think of that as an initial idea? Isn't this something that you and I might actually prosecute today that, that we would put forward? Am I right in thinking that, you know, that that is a kind of connection there? I like it. I like the... Uh the telephone booth as the replacement for the cave. I'm thinking specifically of, uh, you know, you mentioned Dr. Who, but I'm thinking specifically in the 1999 uh, Matrix movie, the telephone booth is the way that you get out of the Matrix. You have to right. reach the booth and plug into it. And I do tend to think whether people know it or not, uh, this being back in 1999, almost 25 years ago now, the Wachowskis are on the occult magical tip and they were onto something with utilizing the phone booth, which by that point would not have necessarily been on its way out. It took a little bit of foresight to see that, but mm -hmm. as something that you uh, uh, kind of emerge from changed each time, it's like a changing booth for your brain, you know? Right. Um, and I think that, Plato's allegory of the cave essentially only being able to see the shadows that that play on the wall or the finger pointing at the moon. Uh, I would be interested to prosecute what exactly the um, what those shadows might be in a phone booth sense. So I'm all in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, here here are the directions that we took back in the day, back when my friend was was still you know alive in the conventional sense. Right. We got to a point where we had managed the video editing process to the point where the figures were morphing rather beautifully in aesthetic terms. Mm -hmm. And we did think that that was just something worth, you know, some artistic attention in its own. But my friend Toby, who was a physicist and very practically minded, took another view. He said, well, wait a minute here. What if we said that this is not just 
an interesting illusion that we've created through artistic manipulation. What if what if this has been an actual revelation of a level of reality that is there unto itself? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he was not one. He, he he really took the view that anything that you could conceive of and and illustrate and, and deal with in any way is some sort of reality that you have to to come to terms with. He was the ultimate metaphysicist. You know, he just said you have to expand your physics, you know. So he said, well, what would what would we do with this in terms of looking at the physics of this? And the first thought was. What's going on here is tempo. You know, that we we've gotten so used to. A certain scale of engagement in life, which is effectively in physical terms, the Newtonian mechanics scale. And that's the level that we live on because that's, we have to, you know, go to the toilet. We've got children that need to be fed and we fit, you know, we're a certain size and things happen, you know, at a certain physical scale. And yet we forget the time. And yet we're also quite willing to talk about, well, time is just that we're, we're all short on time today and everything's going faster and faster. Well, are we really up with that? And the whole quantum, this is where quantum mechanics and relativity physics come to mind. It, I mean, there's a lot that's not connected there and not integrated in those programs of thought. And we await that unified sort of field theory. But they they both move us away from a Newtonian idea to a level of dynamics and non-locality and almost occult possibility. And what is the, the single mechanism? It's time. We haven't really adjusted to new time frames. We don't think in terms of those. And I was thinking about this on the macro Newtonian level, we don't think of terms of time in at very basic levels of education. What is intelligence? It's not just if someone gets it, it's how fast they get it, you know? And we, that is the, the bottom line, common sense, street level notion. Mm, I see what you mean, yeah. You know, how quick on the uptake are you? Are you a quick study, you know? We can't talk about intelligence and formal education circles anymore, but that's what we really mean. And I also wonder about all these new diagnoses of ADHD. Are we really talking about restlessness and fidgetiness and just kids needing to go out and have some play, you know, or are we also talking about restlessness of mind? You've talked about the OCD situation of almost a kind of beehive experience. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that just another level of of tempo? We're not sensitive to being, you know, we're now if someone's 350 pounds, we gotta really be sensitive to them, you know. Mm-hmm. But we don't think about that in terms of well, how slowly they have to move. But we certainly don't think of people working on different tempos of intellect and attention. And I think that was the first level to come out of of our our thinking about this is that a reattention 
to the nature and the power, not a physical scale of human existence, not to molecular, chemical, Newtonian interdynamics, and not necessarily to some abstract idea of the quantum relativistic ideas, but simply more awareness of tempo, musically tempo. I mean, I'm going to get, as I said, I'm going to take a whole bunch of noisemaker musical things to my first class because I want to hear what people's sense of tempo is, you know? I mean, all of the the young people that I know, like they talk about a good beat, you know, well, it's four, four time, you know? Mm -hmm. That's not very interesting to me, you know? (laughs) Three, eight time is interesting to me. Uh, And I think that tempo, the speed of dynamic change, because that is the ultimate philosophical question, going back to the Greeks, the Egyptians, the ancient Indian, you know, everyone was about, is change real? And there's a huge argument that it's not. I mean, all of Western science grew up on the idea that, no, it's not really real. The immutable laws of physics and mathematics exist in some, you know, archetypal platonic form. And yet, that air conditioner is thumping at a certain beat and your girlfriend just looked away at a certain time and you just looked at something else at a certain, you know, and we're not in that really either autistic or Solomon Islander sense, queuing in on tempo. And I think that what we often kill off in our young children is this hyper sense of another level of time. So that's my first thought to you. One of three. This, okay, there are so many different directions that I could go with this. Um, Number one, thinking about a news channel that focuses not on what happens, but at the speed at which it happens would be very interesting. Fast-breaking news. the idea that time, music, rhythm, tempo governs um, not just what happens, but what is, seems to me to be, uh, it immediately brings to mind, uh, you know, the dancing Shiva in India that you see mm-hmm. everywhere. This idea of the music of the uh, 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 of the cosmos, essentially. I really, um, I do like thinking about this in terms of it because as we've talked about on the show before, uh, in the same way that different objects in physical space have have uh, color, shape, and size, time has at least that many dimensions, if not more. So I like thinking about uh, this in terms of, you mentioned Solomon Islanders, and as we often do we come to the conclusion that Solomon Island thinking, animist thinking, and when it's done correctly, occult thinking are all similar things. It's all time-based. It's yes. all what time you do things. Not, yes. not even necessarily what you do. I'm reading this fantastic novel right now. Uh, I'm becoming a huge Tim Powers fan. I've been binging his novels, and I recently read Last Call, 
Did you ever read that one? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I, ha- you know, I brought that with me from Australia, and you mentioned it, and I am a fan. And I went back and 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 started reading that one because it is also set. In, you know, it's it's Vegas based. It's in so. Vegas. Yeah, yeah. It's in Vegas. Um, that the way that Tim Powers conceives of magic working is completely uh, in a sympathetic magic tempo based. Uh, there's a there's a scene where the characters are driving through the desert and they agree to play a card game with a vagrant for m&ms and sugar cubes and he mentions maps and that clicks something in a character's brain so they go to his car and steal some maps and they're looking for all of these signs they're being pursued by these psychics so they put all these noisemakers on the truck cars or cards in the tire spokes things like that to make the psychic pursuing them think that he's chasing after uh, a bus full of people rather than a truck right powers is very cagey in interviews he's often fond of saying of course if i really believed all this stuff that would make me crazy but if you read it with lost explorer's eyes you can see that he understands more than anything else it's not about uh having the proper dagger or the right even necessarily the right minerals or ingredients it's tempo it's the time that you do it and the intention that you do it and the mingling of intention and time right it's not one or the other it's both uh so my thought to sum up my thought goes immediately to uh this as a as a fantastic way of explaining what magic actually is to people who might think that it's dressing in a robe and chanting. That's fantastic. And I think that tempo, you know, comedians would say, well, timing is everything. But when you look at it in broader terms of tempo, tempo is something you never escape from. It's not timing in the, in the stand-up comic sense is kind of focused too tactically and micromanaged in the sense of introducing and, and laying out a joke and the punchline. Yeah. Tempo is the bigger tantric sex, larger occult magic sense of being in tune and in time in a broader Mm -hmm. sense, but also being really alert to the different tempos that things happen at. I mean, I, I was watching some lizards today out in the desert area behind my, you know, Okay, well, it's kind of obvious that lizards don't look like I do, and I don't look like lizards, and I can't, you know, do what they do. And But the most important thing to me was just noticing the tempo that they work at, because they can stand much stiller than I can. Not only can they mm-hmm. move much faster, I don't think I could ever be as still. Isn't you know? that true, though? That is so fucking true. It doesn't, some of these creatures are so quick, but it's not the quickness that gets you. It's the. Yeah. And try to do that with a big ass long tail. You know, I mean, I think the idea of just looking at there's, you know, it's just this. And I think this is the notion, the larger idea in very practical terms about the notion of tempo. It isn't about the movement. It's about the movement. Tempo is bigger. It's about the management and navigation of time. And when we get a little bit more sensitivity to that and enjoyment of that, 
and actually thinking that we can change our tempo. You know, I know people, I know some really good people. They don't feel they can change their tempo of life at all. They are mm. completely controlled. And if you say, well, what are you controlled by? Exactly. Well, you know, they throw out a few sort of, nah. But we can get greater psychic and physical control of our tempo and be better musicians and navigators within that system. And it really, really helps if you have a partner who's on board a little bit. But if you build your family around having a tempo that actually works, I mean, think of all the, I know like so many families and it's just, it's criminal. They they never eat together. They have it for mm. 10, 15 years. They can't get the timing right. Oh, okay. Well, you got the timing right to have the kids. You managed to get, you know, pregnant and actually, but no, having dinner together, you know, think about tempo in a, in a bigger way. All right, that was a very good answer, David. And and now we're on to point number two. And I'd like to introduce this in in the under the heading of quantum sociology. Looking at, and I think it's important that listeners can't see this video. I'm I'm still trying to recover it and really refurbish it to the level uh, that it was at. But I don't think it's important. I think it's conceptually clear. And I think people with decent imaginations can understand what I'm saying. We're talking about a virtually endless series of people inhabiting a phone booth. So they appear to morph and change shape. Well, it's hard not to think, think of that in today's terms of our obsession with fluidity of gender and identity flexibility we all want to be these all these different things well think about that for a moment as my friend toby did in such practical terms he said yeah i get that it'd be really cool to be able to change shape change form instantly but it would be confusing you know if you didn't have total control over it, and even if you did, what would the mirror look like to you? You know, would it start to, I mean, the mirror is already a bit challenging. Cameras, photography, if we said, what happens if we really could start changing shape all the time? And it would certainly be problematic if we didn't have complete control over that by our will and, inf you know, inflicting this design upon the world and he said well what about this what if this is one of the great life hidden equational dualities that there is a fundamental inherent dependence relationship between integrity of personality continuity of consciousness and fluidity or flexibility of identity and appearance. You know, what if there's a balance there that has to be struck? I mean, if you want to be 64 different genders and be all these different things, well, who are you then, finally? Mm -hmm. You know, 
It's great. We understand that. Everyone wants to be many things. And this leads to the final point, which is a real killer. But what if there is some sort of price to be paid for being protean and chameleon-esque? And not many people think about this in terms of art and artists. I don't know many people who are really capable of it. You know, in, in the modern era, I really think of Picasso, Miles Davis, and, and David Bowie. I don't really think of very many writers in modern times who are able to uh, find the ability, have the ability to change shape and form, but are also tolerated by audiences. I think most of the time artists are crunched into a brand and they stick with it because they're they're wanting to put food on the table, you know. But I think there is some equation here of flexibility and fluidity of presentation to the world and internal consistency and integrity of being. That's point two. What do you think of that? Balance is the key word there. That's what I like from what you're saying, because the thing about balance is that when you fall out of balance, your opposite side attempts to compensate. And I think that that is why you see extremes on both ends. I have just taken to calling people who talk and think like you and I, normal people. They're just the base. They're, they're just regular, normal people. Uh, all of them at a certain level have a their feet solidly on the ground in terms of who they are and who they think they are. Now, that's not to say that they can't change. And that is not to say that they don't ever entertain deep philosophical questions about who they are. But the more solid they are in that, the more able they are to have a fluidity of mind. And I don't see very much in the opposite direction, right? If we even take a step back in terms of, you know, people who um, are chameleons in the sense of they completely fall down a political rabbit hole, political ideology, or a subcultural rabbit hole. I'll use punks, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Punk is notorious for having an extreme contradiction at its heart, which is hyper-individualism in which everybody begins to think the same and act the same and look the same. Right, right. Um, And I think that's key to this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So the counterbalance to that is not necessarily, uh, you know, a square or uh, a conformist or what have you, but a person who's just concerned with questions other than those of, of who they actually are. And I think that that particular state of mind, it's not always easy to see from an external appearance, but I do believe that it is required because otherwise, and this, it's really funny because so far, both of these points actually do play into my imaginative challenge, but Mm, I do think that you, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, actually, um, 
it is important, I think, to to have that much, at least, you know. Um, I think that when it comes to kids, you know, um, when I was a younger person, you know, we didn't have the particular ideologies, particularly uh, around uh, sexuality and gender that we have now. But of course, we did have subcultures. And I was, you know, I was just like all the other kids my age who were uh, who had such a fluidity of thought, right? Um, if you allow that fluidity of thought, it's like, it's like having two containers, right? And the identity needs to be something closer to a pudding or a sludge. And the rest of it can be this kind of churning, swirling, reverse osmotic water, right? And if you don't have that barrier between them and the two, you just get a slurry and yeah. nobody's happy. Nobody wants the pudding in their water. Uh, nobody wants watered down pudding. That's the takeaway from this episode. But I think you see what I mean. I think that um, kids' brains are, and and this this is in its own way. It's kind of exciting because you know I'm proud to say now we're both educators. If you can have some kind of influence in that way um, to direct this fluid way of thinking with kids. They can come up with some really cool shit. And the last place that I've seen that they're still creating cool shit is in music. When they're given an opportunity to operate on a sonic level, there's some really cool experimental weird stuff out there. Um, so that's my little bit of positivity for today. I, I really like that. I have to say to listeners that slurry, which is a beautiful word, beautiful word, is not one of David's... Uh, Five no. words that he had to uh, choose two to integrate into uh, tonight's discussion. Okay, well, here's point number three, and I think this brings it around home. Uh, when I was in high school, I ran track in addition to being a pretty crazy drug addict, but I was still really fast. And I like to run the third leg in the 440 relay. And in Oakland, California, we took that very seriously. And not surprisingly, I was, you know, yeah, I was the only white person on that team. But it's a beautiful thing to run that third leg and then to pass the, the baton or baton off to the anchor person. So we're going to do that with David now. I think what, what brings this home is a way of thinking about one of the, the big, big underlying issues of the entire Lost Explorers expedition about the power of metaphor and analogy, the disease or the diseased form that individuality and individualism has taken in the modern era. And the question of perception versus performance in the world because as we watch these figures morph in the phone booth and we thought about this notion of fluidity and flexibility of identity whether that's in gender terms or just in more very physical terms you know people changing shape you know two quotations came to mind Walt Whitman from A Song of Myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. 
Now, that is a very, very powerful statement. One of the most important statements, certainly in American literature. It really brings together American individualism from the beginnings of the colony, but it also connects to Whitman's notions of Eastern religions. It's a big, beautiful idea. And many people would like to contain multitudes. And in a sense, of course, we all do. But my big contribution to this experiment was to point out to my then partner that it wasn't people containing multitudes here. It was the phone booth. And he was right on with that because he said, yes, absolutely. This is the this is the arena. This is the stage. This is the frame. This is the Gilbert Ryle category. And that brings to mind another one of the most important cliches, but beautiful, beautiful phrases in all of English literature. Shakespeare's notion of all the world's stage, which was a cliche when he said it and wrote it. You know, it was not something that he would be overly proud of. Uh, it was in Elizabethan England, it was just a, an understood thing. And the classical Greeks were certainly all on top of that. But notice the difference between those two things. They sound similar, don't they? I am large. I contain multitudes. All the world is a stage. And in his time, a man will play many parts. It's a very big idea. Difference. Difference. Because of the stage. Yep. The stage is the crucial thing. And I would suggest what we have lost in our time is the sense of context, the sense of frame, the sense of humility, of being of playing roles and being different parts. That's very different. I mean, to contain multitudes, that's almost like saying, I know what social justice is, you know, you know. Because I'm so good and I'm an activist, you know, because I'm morally right. As opposed to, I have many different sides to my personality, many different capabilities. I can play many different roles. I can be empathetic to many different audience and situations. What a difference that is. And that is the crucial difference of our time. And I would suggest the person who is uh, too often trying to contain multitudes today. Well, I, I, I know where they are in my neighborhood, or not necessarily my neighborhood, but I know where they are in my city. Uh, they're sleeping out on the street, and they're schizophrenics. You know, they're people who are lost to the system. They're people who have fundamentally lost social connection with being able to play different parts, to be in context, to be in harmony, to be in time and in tune with other people. And I think that is the central problem of the liberal revolution today, where we're trying to be diverse and inclusive and to not acknowledge the fact that there has to be some sort of larger context and that these things are temporary and that underlying that is also a condition that you, David Osborne, or me, Chris Sacktison, that we do have an integrity and a continuity of identity. We have an integrity of continuity in terms of uh, personality and recognition and cognition and bill paying and ethics 
and honor, you know, all those larger things. We're not just chopping and changing these things around where we want to be. You know, if you said to me, well, I'm going to be like really honest in this situation and really dishonest here, I go, well, I don't really think that's cool, you know. And this is the problem, the difference between I am large and contain multitudes. I can do whatever I fucking want, in a sense. That's what it's degenerated into. That's not what Whitman meant at all. He meant it to be a heroic uplift of capability. But I think the simpler thing is all the world's a stage. We take on different roles. And yet you're still Will Shakespeare or David Osborne or whoever, you know. So that's my third point. What I love about this is how it moves from one act, <clears throat> one act to the next. We begin with time, focusing more on time than physical space, tempo, rhythm, a time for everything, to everything, turn, turn, turn. Yeah. We move from that into the balance between solid identity leading to a liquidity, a fluidity of thought. And you take those two together, the time, the solidity of identity, and the fluidity of thought. And when you mix them all together, you get your ability to, in your metaphor of the stage or the phone booth, change roles, right? While maintaining that solid base in there. Because again, we're not looking too sharply at the solid identity at all we're looking at the time we're looking at the tempo right you could say that uh all the world's a stage or you could say all the world's a dance floor and there yeah. are different tunes playing at different times you know so it moves together what i love the most about it is when you said that people don't contain the multitudes the phone booth does that's the that is the big point right there for the individual the first two points are important understanding of tempo uh, uh identity versus fluidity of mind but the biggest thing and the question that has still yet to be answered for me at least is what stage are we on right now what is the context and i think that reestablishment of context is the if you could boil down our cultural issues into one thing you could ask anybody that if you put it to them exactly like you just did. And I'm talking about people from any walk of life who has a thinking brain, right? You could say, what stage are you on right now? What is your context for all of this? What's your container? Right. Yeah. And I think that that would get them thinking. I think that's a great, uh, that's gas in the tank for thinking people. I'll be thinking about it. Well, I really appreciate that because I think it brings to um, a certain level of fruition and the challenge for new navigation from this point. Some issues that we've been talking about from the get go of, you know, the George Lakoff's idea of the metaphors we live by, the, the notion, the larger prepositional idea of the container, the context what situation are we in? Because 
the problem with Whitman's ideas, I contain multitudes, is that, yeah, well, where where are you? Are you standing? You, you, there's no context there. It's a ridiculous challenge for the individual because then they look around and go, well, I don't actually contain multitudes. I hate to say that, you know. I really, I'm just kind of a few sort of like really neurotic, broken things, you know, here. I'm trying to hold it together. And I, I may weigh like, you know, really 300 pounds and be living on welfare. And, but I've got a good, you know, social media front, you know, and, mm -hmm. but the, the big question is where, what container are we in? And mm -hmm. I think this is one of the big issues for lost explorers because we're of course interested in exploring beyond containers and expanding those boundaries so i really appreciate being able to roll this idea out um it, it it's going to feature into the the memory and consciousness book in many ways but i think the core of it is is rethinking the notion of containers and reappreciating our need for containers yep. because we have very mixed feelings about them. They often seem terribly restrictive, but mm -hmm. your young son is very grateful for certain containers as are you, as are, you know, so am I, we love containers in certain ways. And then we fight against, them. and this is the ultimate, I think human issue right there, simply put, for everyone to understand. And I think that is the big lost explorer's idea. I think so too. Yeah, I think this is a great rebirth, redirection for the show. I think that interrogating this idea, this could be bigger than photography for the sole reason that it is not contained, so to speak, to right. one particular thing. You know, uh, explorations of time, identity, and containers uh, phone booths, if you will. I mean, the possibilities really are endless, especially if I, you know, if we go about our days thinking about these things. Um, I want to show you my imaginative challenge now, because when you said metaphor and analogy, I said, okay, now Chris has hit all three aspects of my imaginative challenge. So we are. Right. I'm ready. All right, so I'm calling this uh, thought form impromptu writing deal. Uh, we are all at the bottom of our icebergs. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So, so in this uh, scenario, there is a constant interplay between a race of future humans attempting to create their own present, which is our future. And they are always at odds with human beings themselves. Everything from cavemen bludgeoning themselves with bones to now a control grid between the US, Russia, and China that wants to corral and wrangle billions and billions of people into servitude. The aliens don't want that for us, right? They seeded the earth 300 million years ago after the nuclear destruction of Mars. Two bombs the size of the Empire State Building erupted in the atmosphere killed most of the life on there, except for the ones that escaped. Uh, scientists today are still puzzling over why there are remnants of xenon-129 in the Martian atmosphere, which is a compound that only exists after a nuclear detonation. They okay. are fungal. Right. They are fungal in nature, per Terence, per St. Terence, uh, and they communicate in both a psychic 
and rhizomatic function. They are qu both quantum and instantaneous, as most quantum things probably are. All these years, they have been trying to aid in the development of human beings because they want us to become those big-headed alien bad boys that we all know and love and that Aleister Crowley saw at one point. But they are corrupted at every turn by the MKs, the MKs. What does MK stand for? Is it mind control? No, no, it's not mind control. It's metonymic capture, right? Somebody thought synecdocal capture was a little bit didn't roll off the tongue in quite the right way. No, no the, Instit the Institute for Metonymic Capture uh, is putting forth the idea of the iceberg. It wants to stop psychic communication between human beings. It wants to stop the fluidity of mind. It wants to interrupt the 4-4 time that we're in right now and put it into their own boring waltz or something. I don't know. There are some waltzes that I like. If you look around the internet, you'll see lots of iceberg memes. Iceberg memes are used very specifically to show that any idea that you might have, especially in conspiracy land, has that tip, and then it goes all the way down to the very bottom, which is normally crowded out with lizard people and you know uh, the, the people hearing voices through their TV sets and what have you. Those memes are not a mistake. That is our psychic resonance breaking through and understanding that the way that you control people, psychedelics is a part of it, fear, intimidation. But if you control metonymy, if you control people's synecdoche, you control them. If you, if you control the thought trees by which they associate symbols, if you have a mastership over semiotics, you close off the mind to the rhizomatic fungal Terence McKenna aliens who are trying to aid in our evolution. And you get something very similar to where we are now. So it's our responsibility anytime we find ourselves captured in this way, when we see an image or hear a word and have all of these pre-made associations, we have to realize that that's a container of the bad kind. That's meant to keep us in a box and we have to break out. Oh man, I just thought that was just so lovely. I just want to—I don't know—I <laughs> I really want to just play music in response to that. I think that is just a musical sort of riff. I hope people really hear, you know, just the the joy in that and and the intellect in that because, you know, I got to tell you, I've lived a lot longer than David, and I could tell you that. This is a dark age time. And if we don't find some of the hope and the inspiration and the joie de vivre from the past, the deep past I'm talking about, uh, it nothing's going to matter. And I think that was a beautiful performance of the fact that it's still alive. And this is what is so amazing to me is that what I believe in, in a magical, religious, spiritual, and scientific sense, and I link all those things together as David does, that is all still alive. And that was just performed. And I, I think it is performed, you know, in, in an inhabited sense. And, and we, you know, we give David credit for that, you know, and I like to take credit for certain things too. But in essence, there is a giant, beautiful shadow puppet play enacted across time that we can be party to or we can try to destroy and i i hope that you know 
people enjoy the fact that we're we're not only trying to be party to it, we're trying to sort of extend it. And that was lovely. I really appreciated that. I think that was a great uh, balance and a unique, you know, take on it as as you always bring to it. Um, you know, you want you want people to actually uh, put their own stamp on them. that. Is where the, the strange issue of individuality comes forward because everyone wants to be individual, and yet. Do they really smell that individual? Are their thoughts really resonating to a different frequency? Is there anything that we can get our hands on that is individual? You know, because I think it's it's a deep instinctive thing. And where it is there, we go, you know, even if we don't necessarily, we accept it and we enjoy it, we appreciate it and we certainly, you know, we deal with it. But I think that is really the crucial thing. And I always appreciate how you bring that individuality, which is also a synonym for surprise. Think about that, people. If you want to be individual, yeah, okay, good, good. Be consistent. Consistent. Something you can count on, but be surprising. That's the trick. That is the magician's trick. And that's what people don't like about you know, the responsibility of being an adult today. Ooh, ooh, ooh I like that. I like wow. that. Be consistent, but be surprising. Yeah, that's good. That sets off a lot of, uh, that sets off a lot of ideas. But after that banger allegory of the phone booth idea, I'm dying to know what your tools and tips are for today or your tool and tip, I should say, singular. Okay. Well, the, the tool is, is a good sort of extension of this because it, uh, remembering the phone booth experiment and the time all the time taken to it you know it really reminded me of uh our larger issue of being alert to local physical metaphor i'm I'm really excited about where i live in boulder city there are some really cool things we have the beauty of the lake and the desert mountains and funky restaurant you know there's a lot of great things here but occasionally i go by what is a significant bit of real estate in terms of two baseball diamonds? And I'm talking about pretty significant sports facilities that could easily be used as practice for uh, the university or even a, a professional team. But they are currently under an enormous renovation. And I think about this. I have never seen anyone play baseball on them. Never. And there are 25 to 30 men plus heavy equipment resurfacing, regrassing, doing all of this. And I went out there and I thought to myself, I, and I, I, I was going for a little bit of a break. I was thinking about parts of our brain, parts of our mind from my memory and consciousness book that are not utilized or that are maybe overvalorized. And I looked at this and I thought, you know, there must be thousands of dollars of local taxpayer money being spent on this. This has got to probably mean behind the scenes, a little bit of political corruption. I mean, I'm not, I don't know, but I haven't seen anyone playing baseball there. And it really did make me think, there's something about my local community that maybe I don't know that much about 
Because this is a lot. I mean, how well, you know, what would you think? 25 men working for three weeks with a lot of equipment. That's a lot of money. I wish they'd work on my yard, you know. So I was thinking about this and I thought my tool is look very, very locally because you are connected to your community in ways that you don't even know. And the metaphors for your life are all around you. This is a really beautiful metaphor for me of not knowing that much about my community, which harmonizes beautifully with my book ideas about what do I know about my own mind, my own sense of memory, my own sense of consciousness. I want to colonize those or at least be more communal with them. Look very, very closely about what's happening right across the street from you. You're very good at this, David. You often report on things right across the street. But when we do that, when we do that, we're also able to look a little bit more closely at who we're maybe sharing beds with or who we're sharing heads with, you know, who we're sharing heads with. So look very, very carefully at local metaphor. You will always be surprised and also reaffirmed, I think, about what's going on around you. So that's my tool. And I have two tips. Uh, we mentioned, and I, I occasionally go back to the great romantic poet Wordsworth, and I, I really want to reaffirm the classical tradition of great English-speaking writers. But he was very close to his sister, and he wrote a beautiful poem for her that ends with the rhymed line, but I'll just give you the straight line. This day will give to idleness. And I really want us to remember the beauty of idleness. That's an older way of saying not having something really focused to do. Oh my God, I gotta be doing this shit. I've got to like, you know, and it's not being lazy. It's being idle. It's being open to some, it's letting a little bit of fallow moment of, of communal enjoyment just settle in. And it's so important with our family relationships, our love interests, but just in our own personal hearts and minds. And I want to give everyone a beautiful other culture uh, connection with it. And I have mentioned this before on the show, but it's one of my favorite Indonesian uh Malaysian expressions, they tend to repeat words. So girls are girl girls, you know, uh, but Jalan Jalan, Jalan Jalan is where what we all want to, it, it's just like, I don't have a real plan. You know, I'm going out window shopping. I'm going out looking around. I'm going out with my camera or my recorder or my son, or I don't know. We're not going to be meet at the park at X. You know, no, we're, we're Jalan Jalan. We're, if this is a day we give to idleness, you know, just a little, and we don't even have to give a whole day, but laziness is something that's starting to really, really annoy me because a couple of key people in my life are lazy. And I am not, and you're not. I have a fearsome work ethic, and I love work, and I really am passionate about it. 
But idleness in Wordsworth's sense is a beautiful idea of shared communion and time and relaxation. And it's not downtime. You know, I, if anyone says downtime to me, I, I'm reaching for a wet sponge. I really am. Mm -hmm. I've still got my shoulder in place to really throw it hard. Idleness, I think, is a beautiful, older, discreet, magical, aesthetic, cultured, and also just human time. And Jalan Jalan is street-level marketplace wandering around. And if anyone can really think about that, I want you to imagine a really, really pretty young Malaysian or Indonesian girl with the flip-flop sandal sound. You know, when they're just looking around, you know, they have a moment of free time because they work hard. They often have a lot of pressure, you know, but they have a moment of time to themselves or to a boyfriend or to just a moment. So idleness and Jalan Jalan. And I will throw in one other idea because I just did it last night and I'm doing a workshop on it. And everyone should do this because it's easily done. Get out your notebook. Turn off the lights. And for two minutes, write something like how you would most want to be seen by someone new in your life, whether a lover, an employer, publisher, whoever. But you handwrite it in the dark. Okay? If you don't know your own handwriting, well, who else does? If you don't know what your own asshole is, looks like, well, who else does? Well, you probably don't, you know, but this is the thing. We don't know who each we, we are. We don't. We're trying to build maps and connections, but the handwriting in the dark, the person that you meet when you do look at that, I, I, I really advise putting that aside to the next morning and looking at it and just seeing, you know, seeing what it looks like. So well, that's my absolutely great super great i love the idea of idleness i think that that was exactly what i was looking for you know we've talked i mean there hasn't been downtime for months and yet i don't want to do nothing that right. still bothers me that's it that's it yeah i don't want to do nothing um we've got a special dream for audiences for our audience today um chris why don't you lead us into that dream and we'll close the episode out it's been phenomenal i'm super stoked my brain's going a mile a minute i gotta calm it down so i can go to bed but take us into your dream okay well thank you david and thank you listeners for um you know i'm obviously heating up on a lot of fronts and i i, I feel feel some exciting sort of pressure you know geological you know volcanic sense sort of coming to to fruition and a lot of paths and, and streams of energy from a long time ago. I, I have had a couple of real revelations about dreams. And um, I'm thinking that I can almost map out. And I'm, I'm going to, in, in episodes to come, ask David's help in really visualizing this in a kind of dimensional spectrum of how dreams work from the emblematic, iconic, solid individual image to the larger sense of ceremony which i think is what we mean by the the narrative structures the dreams 
storytelling structures. I think that's where dreams work. We remember individual images and we remember some sense of, even if it's just on a confusion level, of a lot of different events happening and everything else between kind of falls away. And I think that is a clue to the nature of memory at large. And I think it's a clue to the nature of language. And I think from the that, that polarity, that incredible oscillation, the individual image, think of the old ancient Paleolithic cave paintings, you know, one single shamanic figure or some sort of antelope creature. And then to the complexity of Greek drama. I mean, everything falls somewhere on that path. And what falls in the middle? Well, really, I'm not sure anything does. And I think that's the clue to human consciousness and to the nature of language. I think we build up around that oscillating tension between image and ceremony. And I was thinking about that. And then uh, I had a dream and I, I, I thought, well, I I want to make a little bit of, of spoken word music piece to it. But we have more to explore on this idea of the emblem and the ceremony. And I think David and I have the potential to really break new ground about where this lies in the under structure of language and how that relates to consciousness and how that relates to the social dilemmas of our time. So I hope you enjoy this. It was, it was fun to make. Thanks everyone for listening. And thanks David for, you know, always the tremendous uh, engagement and just uh, wonderful resonance of of new ideas this is what we're really talking about is that we're not alone you know we're not alone it, it's very peculiar to feel so alone uh as we often do and and we need to reach out and and to be fortunate enough to uh well to have a david osborne to talk to and to have listeners like you so thank you Time enfolds as well as unfolds. I had a dream about my ex-wife, main ex-wife. Only she was really Kathy Young from kindergarten or first grade. I think Kathy might have been the first girl other than my cousin Emily to show me hers. Kathy liked to bring me into the bathroom with her when she peed. She had a really wild Shirley Temple and Cabbage Patch doll thing happening in her hair and dresses. Think about that. Shirley Temple and Cabbage Patch Doll. After her time, before her time, outside time. 
But anyway, my ex-wife, who would mutate in and out of some Kathy Young aura form, was leaking some kind of fluid and well it was distressing of course but the really odd thing was very simple and so much more for lack of a better word realistic we had not only the dingo the dog that she and I had together we had the mastiff which was a later girlfriend's dog after the divorce so like the Kathy Young Shirley Temple Cabbage Patch doll oscillation here was a situation that couldn't have happened another dog from the future in that moment and that was just starting to ease its way into my mind in the dream and I woke up suddenly so of course the years had passed both dogs long dead 